0: So today we come to Genesis 2 again, and as we have worked so far in our series through, from Genesis 1-1, uh, we've seen that the God uh, who created all that is really is a sovereign king, we were singing of him earlier, and he spoke the universe into existence. Remember that little pattern? God said, it was so, it was good. And, and we're going to keep reminding you of that even in, as we come into Genesis 3 in just a couple of weeks Because you'll see how uh, the the spiritual warfare began and it hit those three particular points hard. We've seen that God's goodness is expressed in the variety, in the beauty, in the abundance of his creation. The, The planet earth was teeming with life as Genesis 1 told us. And so we were seeing that God laid... Uh, the foundation of the universe by his word. Then secondly, we began to explore from chapter 1 how God also laid the foundation of personal identity. You and I have been created in the image of God. That's a big deal. That gives you value. That gives you significance. That gives every human being on planet Earth inherent worth. He created the human race in his image, male and female, Genesis 1 says he created them. And, and that is a divine construct that brings so much value. You are not the product of random chance over millions or billions of years. You're not descended from a primitive caveman-like civilization. You're not descended from monkeys. Your life matters. You were created by God in his image to know him and, and to live in relationship with him. And then we notice uh, in Genesis 2 last week that God established Having established a foundation for work, he also laid a foundation of rest. Six plus one was the simple math equation that Matt put before us last week. And that's God's goodness overflowing toward you and me. Uh, we'll talk about sweat and thorns and the resistance we meet every day. That's a result of sin. Initially, it wasn't that way. Can you imagine rising every day going, "Woohoo! hoo this is the greatest day yet, and what prospect and hope I have to work with God, for God, and with a whole bunch of other people. Most of us have never known days like that, right? It's kind of like, ah, oh, it's Monday. Oh, it's Friday. Oh, it's Saturday. Um, but he does give us a day of rest. And now in chapter two, uh, he is, he, as we're gonna see in just a moment, he's about to lay the foundation of society or community. And what I, what I pray God will give us the grace to see today is that we were all created, male and female, with a a divine orientation toward work and relationship. Um, We're not gonna explore work so much as we will the relationship side of that, but God's design from the beginning uh, is that people would live not only in right relationship to him, but with a mutual dependence upon one another, As they share the divine mission, as they share a perfect physical correspondence, and as they share a relationship that is marked by purity and security. Those are the main ideas we're going to unpack here in just a moment. So join me please as we pray, and then we're going to look to the Word of God. Father, how I pray that you would give us grace to receive your Word, and that your Spirit would do exactly what you have promised. These things that you reveal to us through the Spirit are spiritually discerned. Thank you that it is the dear Holy Spirit who searches everything, even the depths of God. Paul said or asked, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So we, we could not enter that secret place that we might know your mind, your heart, but the Spirit has been given to reveal all that you are and even portions of what you think and, and what you have designed. So give us insight by your Spirit and we pray that the words that are spoken here would be more than human wisdom, So much more, because we need divine wisdom. And to that end, we pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Go to Genesis 2 with me, and I'd like to read now verses 4 through 25. That'll take us about three and a half minutes. But you follow along, please, as I begin reading in Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heavens. And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. You know we often wonder how we should navigate the ever-changing currents of, of society. It seems that the structures and traditions shared by civilization through the ages are in a season of really significant change, and if what we describe or we sometimes wonder, even in light of a very specific conversation related to marriage, is what we describe as traditional marriage just another example of a a social construct? Are we free as a society to define marriage however we choose? And I suppose from a strict democratic perspective, the answer would be, well, yes, because after all, this nation is a It's supposedly a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So you get enough people together who agree to a a particular law or piece of legislation, and they can make it happen. But from a biblical perspective, the answer is that our Creator God defines marriage. He is the one who establishes the foundations and even parameters and limitations of communities and, and societies. And if marriage in particular is not limited to one man and one woman, do we have to stop with one plus one? I mean, why couldn't it be two men and two women? Or varying combinations, one man and multiple women, or one woman and multiple men, or one man and one child, or even two children? And some of the murkiness of of our cultural thinking at the moment uh, is even revealed when we are, some are actually suggesting that little children have this innate sense of what their gender really is despite the DNA. Well, why couldn't little children up and decide here's the definition of marriage? See, it, it not only gets murky, it gets a little scary if it really is up to us to collectively decide what should be. You know, to be a Christian is not only to be a genuine follower of Christ, but also to be a follower of his teaching. As he said in Matthew twenty-eight, twenty-two, to observe all that he has commanded. And he's not unclear on matters like marriage, on sexuality, even on community and society. And to be a follower of Jesus means that we are serious, first of all, about knowing his word, second, about believing the word of God. We may not fully understand it, but the things that are crystal clear, and there's, let's face it, there's plenty in the word of God that's crystal clear. We're not just called to know it and be able to affirm it as if a set of facts that exist outside of our lives. No, we're called to believe it, and then thirdly, to obey it. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen with the intent to obey is better than any offering that you could bring to the Lord. So, again, we open our Bibles to see what God has said about marriage and even the foundation of community. Now, what I want you to notice, we're gonna skip right to verse 15. There's so much here. Uh, let, me, let me just tackle a couple of quick highlights, though. And, and this adds to the glory of being created in the image of God. Do you know that as a human being, you were placed on earth, divinely so? And verse 15 gives us two primary commands, and it's, it's good for men and women. So this is not exclusive to one gender. But you were created by God and placed here at this moment on this earth, to work his creation and to guard it. There's so much here. My heart was blessed this week, but for the sake of time, we we just can't spend a ton of time. But let me summarize it in this way, tying it back to chapter one. This working and this guarding are exactly what co-regents do. And remember, that's part of your identity. You, You are created by royalty as royalty. There's a royal stewardship that God has designated you for. And, and your inclination to do things like sweeping the sidewalk or recycling plastics or planting flowers in your yard or landscaping a city park, designing water filtration systems for a, a neighborhood or studying human anatomy, it actually reflects this very point. And you know it deep in your soul. Some of you still haven't figured out well, where did that come from? Again, it's not, it's not the product of evolution, The God who created you put his thumbprint right into the depths of your soul. You were created for a really big mission. There's so much more I could say, but let's press on highlight number two from verse 16. There's a divine commandment, and remember, every time God has spoken in chapter one, not only did what he say come to pass, but then his assessment of it all was it was good. It was good, it was good. And this commandment is actually good and notice within it, first of all, he says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden except for one. And the only reason he limits uh, the menu from including that one tree out of, and think of how many thousands uh, of trees still exist post-Genesis 3 in the fall, post-flood. It's abundance, it's blessing, And even the restriction is for the good of the first humans. So there's a divine commandment. And then we come to verse 18. There's a divine design. And that's where we're going to begin to unpack some things. And I want you to see this. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, that's a little jarring for us, and just pretend we read Genesis 1 also. God said multiple times, it's good, it's good, it's good. Now, it's God himself who, on the sixth day, because that's when it took place, um, he creates the male, and then he says, this is not good for him to be alone. You are created alone. And and this is not just true for the men in the room. It's true for all of us as human beings. You're created for personal relationship. It's not good to be isolated. Now, there's inherent goodness that runs throughout the universe that God has established, and that certainly includes those who are created in his image. But to be alone is not good because like God himself, in the context of a Trinitarian relationship, he is a relational God And his image bearers are also created for relationship. But let's explore a little deeper. Look at that word helper. What kind of helper is this? I know we sometimes joke about the fact, well, he's a guy. He obviously needs help. I mean, who's going to feed him and clothe him and, you know, do all those domestic things for him? Well, that's not at all what's in view, is it? And we should give guys a little more credit. And some of you guys should take a little more responsibility. That's another sermon, right? We'll, we'll leave that. No, this help that God is actually speaking of is a, is a term of, of great nobility and significance, and you find it in the Old Testament, first of all, with reference to God. We even read of this earlier in one of the Psalms that He's our hope and He is our help. So God is actually creating God-like help for this man, this the concept of help appears in some very important names. When Moses is blessed with two sons, he names the first son Gershom and the second Eliezer. And if you break that, that name apart, Eli means my God, and the E-Z-E-R part, the Azer part, is help. God is my help. Moses was making a, a personal testimony as he named his son and wanted to pass that faith on to his son. Nobody would ever say of God, He's like a domesticated kind of help, you know, as if He drives up with you know mops and brooms and cleaning supplies, you know, in in the back of His vehicle to just clean up our messes. That's not the kind of help that God is. Psalm thirty three, verse twenty, says, "Our soul waits for the Lord; He is our help and our shield." Psalm one fifteen, verses nine through eleven: "Oh Israel, trust in the Lord; He is your help and your shield." O house of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is your help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. Adam doesn't need domestic help. He needs God-like help. In one sense, the work is too expansive, too comprehensive for him to do alone. And so God creates a help. It reminds Adam and it reminds us that he actually is dependent. God never intended for there to be lone rangers americans love not only their independence but their autonomy we kind of pride ourselves in, you know pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps that's an old saying you know you know there were days where they actually sewed straps into your boots that would help you pull it on some of you who are older and bending over now is a difficulty you you get it like that would that'd be great for your shoes self-sufficiency is one of the, you know, great western values, but that's not actually God's design. And it's a bit of a delusion to operate with a sense that I don't need anybody else in my life or in my world. Yes, you do. You were created not only for personal relationship, but you were created for mutual dependence. Look again at verse 18 because now God says, "I'll make him a helper fit for him." That simply has the idea that this first man needs one who will perfectly correspond to him. So there's a difference, but there is a beautiful corresponding nature to what God is about to create, a counterpart, if you will. It really becomes quite a marvelous concept. And in the same way that God did not create you to live independently, He's also created us as human beings to, to know the, the beauty and glory of a counterpart. Now, let me interject this right now because I recognize that this is going to seem like it's, it's a message that is limited to marriage. And while that is at the center of the focus, we should also recognize, and this is one of the frustrations of not being able to preach, you know, two-hour sermons every Sunday is we can't be comprehensive in all of this because there are many other passages that demonstrate to us uh, to be single uh, in, in God's will can actually be a gift from his and is. And I know there are a lot of singles here and singles for various reasons. So please know uh, that God is not trying to exclude you from the conversation at this moment and neither am I. We're talking in some in big... Broad generalizations and principles, and I'm aware of the fact that even some of you, to, to be parked here right now, is, there's a little bit of sorrow in your heart because it's a reminder of, of a relationship you've lost, maybe even a relationship that you've prayed for but never found. But please, please know that God doesn't put you into a secondary, secondary category or, or even in a you know, different class We're looking at some things from the big picture view that are foundational for understanding how God wants his world to operate, and and a society or a community itself is founded in some of these powerful and profound truths. What you have here, though, to return the text, this concept of, of, of a helper who is fit for him, that is... She, she's going to be fashioned in a particular way that she perfectly corresponds, or the perfect match, if you will, to the man. And one author writes, the focus is on the equality of the two in terms of their essential constitution. Man and woman share in the human sameness that cannot be found elsewhere in creation among the beasts. And in every way, the woman shares in the same features of personhood as does the man. And we won't take time to read it, but Part of the exercise of naming all the animals is for Adam to recognize uh, there's something that's not quite right at this moment. The whole world, animal kingdom primarily because that's in view, is partnered. Where's his partner? And even though we refer to dogs as man's best friend, they're really not. So there is a design by God that includes Personal relationship, mutual dependence, corresponding counterparts. Let's press on. And what I want you to see is the divine glory. This this is a stunning portion of scripture. Look again at verse 19. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast, and then he's gonna say, for Adam there was not found one. Now look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. who are in the medical field really wonder what what all happened there, right? We all do. But the Lord tells us the most important thing. Verse 22 says, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Oh, this is spectacular. First of all, uh, she is created from shared substance. A rib. And the terminology that Moses uses in verse 22 to describe the action of the Lord is that he fashioned, he he built. He drew Adam from the dust and created the first male. And now he draws something of that marvelous substance out of the side of this man and creates a woman. Ladies, I think you have biblical authority to say we are refined more than you dudes in this room god pulled you out of the dirt he drew me out of living flesh it's matthew henry who wisely he's a old pastor his commentaries are still widely available when i say old like he's long been with the lord like what 150 years ago i should look at the dates again this is a beautiful statement though He wrote, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Don't you wish our world could get a handle on this? Don't you wish you could get a handle on this? It's spectacular what the Lord is doing. Well, she's not only created from living, that shared and living substance. Look at verse 23. She's also created for satisfying companionship. And we know that by the way the man responds. Our text says, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew literally reads, woo, Who? (laughs) No, it's actually more glorious than that, and I've touched on this before, and we've been in this passage, but you know, that's actually poetry. And that's a little bit of a theological debate. You know, did Moses turn it into poetry, or did he actually, by the Holy Spirit of God, you know, get to sample, as it were, the audio from that early day? I think it's what actually happened. Again, it's a perfect man in a perfect world. He just saw the perfect woman. Of course poetry's coming out of his mouth. But did you notice how intensely personal it is for him? He's been through the naming exercise and named a whole bunch of marvelous animals that God had created. And, and what an exercise, in even, even in doxology, that must have been for him. But nothing on the face of planet Earth comes close to the glory and wonder of what he now sees standing before him. And it's not just that he's saying, wow, or woo-hoo. No, he's assessing, saying, this is what I am. This is the part of me that I couldn't find previously. Oh, it's high drama. Some of you have had a little taste of that. For me, it happened in September of 1989. Why I didn't have eyes to see the one that God had prepared for me sooner, because that's part of the story of coming to, uh, you know, love Kristen. We had been friends for a couple of years, and she teases me to this day. Well, you could have, you know, we could have been together sooner. And I try to remind her that she actually had another relationship going. <laughs> but there was a bit of this moment for me. I had been, uh, to tell you a little bit about the story, I had, I, in college, I, in summers, um, one of my part-time jobs was working with the landscaping crew of the Christian college that I attended, and I'd been laying sod. It was an early August, uh, I think first week, second week of August, whatever, it doesn't really matter, but it's hot in South Carolina in August if you've never traveled there, and to lay sod in the open sunlight, I mean, that is hard, hard work. And uh, my manager and I were actually on the back of the campus because we had an extra sod and we were just rolling it out and going to set sprinklers on it and figure out where to you know, lay that next batch. And uh, we were down in an area where just across the way was a pavilion that was used for all kinds of events. And one of those events that they had planned was some of the uh, student leadership was going to have one of the first organizational meetings there. And lo and behold, uh, Kristen comes driving up and um, the funny thing was, like, the meeting wasn't there at that time. Like, it was later at that location, but she'd gotten the times mixed up. Even there, I can say, see, God was working that out. But I can, I can picture, as I'm telling you this story, honey, I can still see you. <laughs> I remember that car pulled up, and she got out, and I looked at her, and it, it, was, it was my woo-hoo moment. I had known her for a long time. That was the moment when God needed to reveal something else. And I actually said to her, are you still dating so-and-so? And she looked at me, and I mean, as she's walking, she was like, no. <laughs> or, or, sorry, yes, sorry, I just told that all wrong. <laughs> oh, did I ask you? Oh, she's correcting it now. So I didn't just say, are you dating, are you engaged? I forgot that I asked that. That's why she said no. And then she went on, you know, to the meeting that was not. Um, and that friendship became really special in a hurry. And there's a lot more to that story that we'll tell another time. What Adam is coming to terms with is that this one that has been created by God is the missing piece. And let me just say, you, I, I would want to make sure that we never think that only in marriage can you find the missing piece of a relationship. Some of you are actually called and positioned by God to be single. Jesus was. Paul was, although there's speculation that he might have been previously married, and maybe after conversion his wife said, I didn't sign up for this Christian stuff. We don't know. There are a number of individuals in the scriptures who are single by God's design, and I would never want any of you to think that because you are not married in the way that this is described, that somehow you're missing out you know, ultimately, our souls are satisfied in God alone, and not even marriage is salvation from sin and loneliness. What this is illustrating for us is not just the foundation of marriage itself, but the foundation of relationship in society. God intends to uh, bring you into relationships with other people. You know, do you ever look at the people around you? I'm broadening it even beyond a spouse. Would you ever just look at the human race around you with this kind of wonder? Unfortunately, we've been conditioned by our sin and our culture to objectify others. We always seem to be assessing the people around us as to how they might benefit us. And our souls are so scarred and scabbed with sins like selfishness and pride, with lustful appetites that have been Distorted and stoked by things like pornography and carnality, that often we can't see the wonder of God's glory in those around us. I was thinking once again how we need to ask God to clean our hearts of the sinful debris that has built up there, the debris that keeps us from seeing others as God's glorious creation and to give us eyes that would see them with an atom-like vision. Our culture does not view the human body, let alone, uh, uh, to be very specific, a woman's body as an expression of sacred glory, And this is part of what makes voyeurism and pornography such an evil. The producers and consumers of this evil take God's image and and in a very real sense first extract the soul, the valuable soul of the individual and then strip that individual not just of her clothing but of her divine dignity and place her in the public market to be bought to be used, to be discarded and disposed of as we would any other consumable. Is it any wonder that women in particular rise up and demand their rights? Is it any wonder that some flee the institution of marriage and some flee all male companionship whatsoever because they are thought of and treated as nothing more than a consumable, a menu selection? to satisfy and gratify lust. That's not the way God created it, but that's what our sin has done to his beautiful image bearers. Ladies, you are so much more than a menu selection. And guys, you are too. And I know the pressure some of you live with day in and day out to measure up. Isn't it interesting that God's ideal of beauty doesn't begin with the outside? He's after your heart, because you, I mean, what sin has done to the earth suit, as Paul Tripp described it just a couple of weeks ago, we all get it, right, and you who are young, your time's coming, gravity and bad diet alone, yeah, I, I used to think that way, what's with these old people, why don't they take better care of themselves, yeah, you just, you just wait, but a great day is coming when we get the new outside, and what's glorious for God's people, is that the outside will not cover what's inside, but will actually be like the full expression of the perfect heart and soul in you. That's the hope of the gospel, that God begins a renovation from the inside out. You are uniquely, divinely created. You, all of you, not just ladies, but all of you really are a wonder to know and behold and don't let our adversary, the devil, tell you differently. And don't let anybody else on planet Earth tell you differently. Now, real quickly, last subheading. You're created for sacred community. Look at verse 24. Moses, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interjects him. He interrupts this powerful narrative, creation. And, and the word therefore, you need, to, you need to just lift your head out of the creation account and track with the spirit where he's leading us by the pen of Moses. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. There's a sacred union that is emerging here and this is the beginning of true community. This is the beginning of civilization, if you will. The two individuals who are created of the same flesh now become one flesh. <laughs> what? What? And this is where I need another hour, where I would say turn to Ephesians 5, and then we'll explore the redemptive mystery of marriage, that for Christians who enter into this union, being a husband and wife as you follow Christ, has to do with being Christ, uh, dramatizing the nature of Christ in his church. All marriage is ordained by God. It's, It's always blessed of him whether you're a Christian or not, but if you're a Christian oh, you've been called into a divine drama that's designed by God to reveal the mystery of how could Jesus and the church enter into a holy union. That's a whole other message, but you can read that this afternoon and find other preachers on sermonaudio.com or whatnot who do a really fine job of explaining that in its full. So here, as one author says, though, back to the text, the idea of one flesh expresses the complete personal community of one man and one woman as spiritual unity. And this mysterious interweaving of soul and spirit, of body and breath, the divine call for two distinct people to live for God in such a way that their lives meld one into the other, not losing their personal identity, but actually finding greater capacity to glorify God, to enjoy relationship with him, and even to find that intense and deeply satisfying uh, satisfaction of fellowship in their creator God with one another. But look at the last verse, the sacred union also emerges with something quite spectacular. The Lord says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This made me giggle when I was in junior high, but it, this, is not, this, is, this is not material for laughter. It's material for wonder. You know, on, on this side of Genesis 3 in the fall, it's actually terrifying, if not even criminal, to be fully exposed like this in the presence of another person, isn't it? But what was happening here is so extraordinary, so, so powerful that I don't want you to miss it. There, first of all, is a purity in this because there's no sin in them and there's no sin around them. But there's also security. And isn't this what we all long for? To be so fully known and at the same time fully accepted, valued, esteemed, to be wondered at as Adam was when he, you know, he's speaking poetry. And in the context of marriage, even, even post-sin in the fall of Genesis 3, God still gives us a little taste of this when he calls a man and woman to enter into an exclusive relationship and even in the appropriate way, at the appropriate time, to be Fully bear before the other. This is so much more than just a physical note. There's an openness and transparency and safety for their souls. And you know what? God wants to restore every one of us to that place where we know that we are so loved, so valued, so cherished, so secure that we can be fully exposed before him. That's a terrifying thought right now, isn't it? And that's because sin is in us and in our world. I love you as my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I I don't trust you in this way. I'd be afraid you would mock me, make fun of me, point out the flaws in me. But at this moment, it really is perfect because it's absolutely pure and it's absolutely secure. You say, will we ever, could, could we ever find That, and the answer is yes, in Christ, the one who makes all things new. That's why we were singing a song earlier that was pointing us forward, a day that's coming. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun runs its successive journey. I'm twisting the the beautiful poetry of the hymn writer there. He does reign presently, but he has not yet put all of his enemies under his feet. But one day he will, and this world will be safe and secure, and you will be free to live life as he truly created you to live it one day. But it's only in him. From an earthly perspective, this couple has it all a combined annual income between 60 and 90 million dollars, a combined net worth estimated at 650 million. She is fluent. In five languages, Portuguese, English, Italian, Spanish, and French. Between 2000 and 2017, she was the highest paid model in the world. Her career took off in 1996, and by 2015, she had racked up more than 500 ad campaigns, 800 fashion shows, 2,000 magazine covers, and 3,500 magazine editorials. In 2018, she released her book, and it became a New York Times bestseller instantly. The title, ironically, Lessons, My Path to a Meaningful Life. She gave the proceeds from this book to support all kinds of social and environmental causes. He is one of the greatest athletes of all time. He's the winningest quarterback in NFL history, never having a losing season as a starting quarterback while with the Patriots. He led the Patriots to more division titles, 16 in all, than any other quarterback in NFL history and his record seven Super Bowl trophies will likely never be matched. And despite a rocky season this year, his retirement looks bright with record salaries already being offered to him in a second career as a sports broadcaster. But this week, the announcement came that Tom Brady and Giselle Bündchen are divorcing after 13 years of marriage. I listened to an interview that Anderson Cooper conducted a few years ago with her. And there was a little piece that stood out to me because he was asking her about some of her practices and how she deals with the stress and strain of the life that she lives. And she talked about meditation and even talked about prayer. But this was the heartbreaking part because in some way she's so close and yet she's so far. Listen to this. She said, whenever I pray to... And then she paused and it, it was obvious. She was uncomfortable saying these things in front of the live audience that was present. She said, whenever I pray to your guardian angel, or whatever you call your higher self. I always ask, show me the way, guide me, and whatever happens, help it to be for my highest and best. And I have to trust that there's a higher intelligence in the universe that knows better than we do. And if we can trust that intelligence and know that things are happening for me and not to me for my growth, for my evolution, there's no pain because there's trust. And that's what I just thought, so close. What's the difference? Based on her own words, I think it's evident, she's never come to know the living God. And all the success and all the wealth, all the accolades, all the achievement was not enough to keep her and her husband together. What are they missing? The God who created them. And that's what some of you are missing even some of you who who would say, I am a true follower of Jesus, but your marriage is in shambles right now because somewhere along the way, you, you asked the Lord to slide over into the passenger seat or maybe even get out of the car of your marriage. And in your mind, two people who really are committed ought to be able to make this thing work. Well, you underestimate your sin and you underestimate your spouse's sin. You gotta have God to make it work. And you need to return to the original purpose because even this holy union that God created was not ultimately about the joys of these two people, that's actually secondary to first being in right relationship to him, being the people that he created them to be. And then coming together, again, for his glory. Well, there's far more that we can and will say, God willing, in the weeks to come. But let's keep building these foundations. I think the first key foundation, I would say, from out of Genesis 1, is that you and I have been given an identity from God himself as image bearers. It gives you value, it gives you significance, it gives you worth. Number two, each of us has been given a purpose in this world, co-regents with the Almighty God, chiefly expressed as we exercise dominion, as we work and guard, as we steward the world that we're a part of. And then from the text today, God-given privilege of sacred community. And he's building one right here that he calls this church. And aren't we thankful for that? Let's pray together. God, You are so much more than a guardian angel, thank you. You're so much more than just a higher power. You're king. You're the savior of all. The one who rescues us from the ruin of our sin. And we have made a mess of your world. You're also a shepherd. You're the comforter. And you're the God who says, I am your friend. We are awed by that. And we ask that you would restore to us right thinking concerning our identity, our purpose, and privilege. And some who are here today have lived not just with a few mistakes along the way, but lived in a way that they've been wholly absorbed with self. They've looked at other human beings as a product to be consumed. And some even have looked at their marriages as a consumable more than just a glorious gift that comes from your hand. Would you forgive us? We're sinning against one another in thought and word and deed. Would you restore to us the glory and wonder that is recorded both in Adam's response and in Moses' account? Would you build a community of faith here where we know what it is to live in awe of God and even in awe of one another as image bearers, flawed as we are, weak as we are, imperfect as we are. But please, Lord God, restore the wonder. And for those marriages that are struggling, Lord, would you grant to husbands and wives that faith that takes you at your word, the obedience that commits to following your word, and even that renewal one to another that says, God is enough. So Father, would you take your word and seal it to our hearts and whatever wisdom has come from my imagination or even just out of the culture that we're a part of, just let it lie useless and lifeless as we go from this time. You are are an awesome God. Your power is great. Your wisdom astonishes us. The creativity amazes us. The wonder of this world is beyond our comprehension. But thank you. Thank you for all that is, and thank you for all that you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.